Welcome back, my friends, to the Shema Podcast and part two of Accessorizing the External to Change the Internal with Rabbi Abrahams. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. So the next thing I want to talk about is tzitzis. And with this approach, I want to focus a little bit on what Rabari Kaplan says about the commandment of tzitzis. So first of all, um, there's a story in the Talmud. It's in Menachot, page 44, side A. And it ha- there's, an, there's a story about a person who used to wear tzitzis very diligently, very carefully, every single day. So I'm just going to read what the translation says of this story. It says, there was an incident regarding a, a certain man who was diligent about the mitzvah of ritual fringes. The man heard that there was a prostitute in one of the cities overseas who took 400 gold coins as her payment. He sent her 400 gold coins and fixed the time to meet with her. When his time came, he came and sat at the entrance to her house. The maidservant entered and said to her, the man who sent, sent you 400 gold coins came and sat at the entrance. So the prostitute said, let him enter. He entered. She arranged seven beds for him, six of silver, one of gold, meaning one on top of each other. Between each and every one of them, there was a ladder made of silver, and the top bed was the one that was made of gold. She went up and sat undressed on the top bed, and he too went up in order to sit undressed facing her. In the meantime, his four ritual fringes came and slapped him in the face. He dropped down and sat himself on the ground, and she also dropped down and sat on the ground. She said to him, I take an oath by the, I think this is the word is um, Gapa of Rome, must be referring to some of their, one of their um, gods, that I will not allow you to go until you tell me what defect you saw in me. So he said to her, I take an oath by the temple service. See, that's his God, right? That I never saw a woman as beautiful as you. But there is one mitzvah that the Lord our God commanded us, and its name is Ritual Fringes. Tzitzis. And in the passage where it is commanded, it is written twice, I am the Lord your God. The doubling of this phrase indicates, I am the one who will punish those who transgress my mitzvot, and I am the one who will reward those who fulfill them. The first time it says it, it's, it's meant to be an element of rule. I think the second time, actually. First time, it's a, it's a demonstration of God's judgment, meaning I'm the Lord of God and I'll enforce set upon you. And the second one is I'm the Lord of God and I will reward you for however you, that you serve me. So he, he quotes this um, passage to the woman and explains them. Now, said the man, the four sets of ritual fringes, again, sitsis, appeared to me as if there were four witnesses who will testify against me. She said to him, I will not allow you to go until you tell me what is your name and what is the name of your city and what is the name of your teacher and what is the name of the study hall in which you study Torah. He wrote the information and placed it in her hand. She arose and divided all of her property, giving one third as a bribe to the government, one third to the poor, and she took one third with her in possession, in her possession, in addition to those beds of gold and silver. She came to the study hall of Rabbi Chia and said to him, my teacher, instruct your students concerning me and have them make me a convert. Rebekia said to her, My daughter, perhaps you set your sights on one of the students, and that is why you want to convert. So he understood. He, didn't, he realized there wasn't, this wasn't happening in a vacuum. Um, she took the note the student had given her from her hand and gave it to Rebekia. He said to her, Go take possession of your purchase. Um, those beds that you have arranged for him in a prohibited fashion, she now arranged for him in a permitted fashion. The Gemara completes this point about the reward of mitzvahs and points out how the story illustrates the concept. 
This is the reward given to him in this world, and with regard to the world to come, I do not know how much reward he will be given. So, essentially at the end she converted, and she married the guy. This is the way the Gemara, the Talmud, is understood. She married the guy, and she did so in a, in a permitted fashion, where she had originally wanted this person in a prohibited fashion. How to understand the tzitzis slapping him in the face, it's hard to understand that they physically slapped him in the face. So the understanding that I've, um, I've seen is that the tzitzis were, uh, slapped him in, a, in, in his sensitivities. They slapped him in a psychological sense. He saw the tzitzis as he's about to take them off. He's stripping to go to the top bed. And as he's taking them off, it struck him. He's uncomfortable about this. He wears tzitzis every single day. And now suddenly he's uncomfortable taking them off to perform this sin. So let's explore why would he be uncomfortable taking off his tzitzis, which is just another garment, before for climbing to the top bed. So again, I want to talk about the basic function of clothes now. So before we talked about how clothes can portray a certain identity you want to live up to, a certain ideal, and then you may or may not try to live up to those ideals. There's another basic function of clothes, and this really takes us back to the story of Adam and Eve. Before the sin, Adam had not internalized the evil urge, the evil inclination. And at that point, he was when he would see something in the world, he would not find it in it merely a means of satisfying his own pleasures, his own desires. He wouldn't look at things that way. He wouldn't look at the world around him as a means to exploit, exploit it for his own benefit because he didn't have the evil urge internalized. It was only when the snake came and gave him a very intellectual reason to sin, a very rational reason to sin, that Adam finally, finally took a bite out of the, out of the fruit from the, from the tree. After the sin, however, it says that he internalized the evil inclination, the way we, under, we, we experience evil urges today. So after the sin, it says that Adam and Eve were uncomfortable. They were ashamed of their nakedness. The difference between before the sin and after the sin is that before the sin, Adam would look at the world, Eve would look at the world, and they see no reason to exploit it. They see no reason when looking at each other's bodies to exploit it for their own personal gratification. But after the sin, when the evil urge is within them, now they see, they see a means of exploiting the other person's body. When they look at somebody else, they see a means of exploiting that person for their own personal gratification. That was the difference between before the sin and after the sin. How did God respond to this? This new issue that suddenly Adam's dealing with? You can imagine, that, again, we talked about a culture shock before. The Jews migrating to the inner cities and suddenly they're, they're fully exposed to, secular, to the secular world. Well, you can imagine what Adam felt suddenly having the evil urge within him when before it was completely external. So God responded by making clothes for them because clothes serves that basic function. They prevent us, or let's just say they guide us away from objectifying other people's bodies. When we look at a person today and they're wearing clothes, we are, shall we say, less likely to objectify them than if they're not wearing clothes. Or if those clothes are of the type that will only direct us towards objectifying that person. Right. There are sorts of clothes that can do that, right? Right, that more accentuate the body. Right, than... if anything, if anything that's, that's an even bigger issue than walking around without clothes. But the idea of clothes in this very basic sense is to protect ourselves from being objectified by others and also to, guide, to make us more sensitive, let's say, or to guide us away from objectifying other people. And also, by the way, objectifying ourselves. This is a very, a very fundamental idea in Judaism that which we're about to see with tzitzis, but in general, clothes are, are supposed to help us, guide us away from objectifying our own bodies, which can be, can lead to disastrous results as well. Before we talk about 
tzitzis himself, we're talking about clothes. Um, one thing that's important to note is that every single mitzvah is essentially, when, when it involves an item or a limb or whatever it involves, it is essentially the ultimate function of that item or that limb, that organ, whatever it's, whatever it's being used to perform the mitzvah. That's what a mitzvah is. It is the ultimate function of a thing that is being used for that purpose. So, when we talk about tzitzis, adding this accessory to our clothes, Ramchal explains this in Derech Hashem, The Way of Life, or Moshe Chaim Lozato, that this is the ultimate function of clothes. This is the commandment that we fulfill involving clothes. We put fringes on our four-corner garments. And by the way, today, it's completely optional because we don't really wear four-corner garments today. When people buy tzitzis, it's in addition to whatever clothes they're normally wearing. So, if it, since it's optional, if anything, it requires more of a motivation and more of a sense of purpose to put it on. So again, every mitzvah, that is the ultimate function of that item. So in this case, tzitzis is the ultimate function of clothes. And what was the whole purpose of clothes? The basic function of clothes is to guide us away from objectifying other people and their bodies and exploiting them for our own personal benefit. Because initially, all that was noticed was the, the spiritual neshama type aspect. Right. And, and the sits are a way of oh. not allowing us to be distracted and exactly. evaluating people based that's off the well exterior. That's, that's very well put. Exactly. So the sits are meant to serve the highest function that clothing can serve, which is to redirect, to redirect our attention away from the object and look at the subject. Look yeah. at the internal, not just the external. Not, look at, not only look at the parts that we can exploit, but the parts that we can build up, the parts that we can develop. That's what the tzitzis are there to remind us of whenever we wear it. So going back to the story of the, of the man who visited the prostitute, the, what his tzitzis had done to him in that moment, the, psych, the psychological impact that the tzitzis had on him, was this is a person who was very diligent. He wore it all the time. He understood, or he internalized at least, the meaning of tzitzis by taking really, really good care of this commandment. He always wore it. In the, in the Talmud states it very specifically. He wore it diligently. Because he took such great care, when the time came and his sensitivities were about to be challenged, he became very uncomfortable with the idea of taking off these sitsas to, to objectify and exploit somebody else's body. Okay, so there's two things here. Mm-hmm. One which is interesting, and I'll, I'll share this story. Many years ago, took Rabbi Yochoff Wolby to the, I think it was the bicentennial event for the Mir Yeshiva in New York. I've been staying for him for a while. They're having this big event. And I said, I want to treat you. I want to take you there to visit with your rabbis. And I go there. And it's the first time to really be around a bunch of Torah observant yeshiva Jews. And it blew my mind away because I, I think my, even my daughter said this when we were doing FaceTime. Like, does everyone shop at the same store? Because it was all, you know, black suits, mm-hmm. white shirts, black hats. And what he told me was so interesting and there's so much truth to it. I thought it was so special. And he said, well, we are not in- emphasizing that. We're not look, trying to express our differences in the clothing. We're trying to allow each other to get past that. And so people can look at someone and see what's unique and special about them beyond the clothing. Wow. Their character, who they are. And I thought that is an amazing idea because in, in secular culture, everyone tries to express their individuality through their clothing, which is very superficial. That is very profound. And you're only looking for the truth now. You're not looking for the externalities that people could fake. Right. People could lie about. You're looking, looking deeper than that. That's very profound, yeah. 
So, so I think that that's a, a key concept to our parable. You're saying that the seat seats is what allows us to elevate the clothing further. Exactly. I mean, the clothing serve this basic function for everybody. Everybody who wears clothing, at least if they're doing it properly, it's to redirect attention away from the objectification of you and turn it towards looking at you as a person. That's what everybody's wearing clothing, at least, again, the people who are wearing it for that purpose. There are people right. wearing it for the complete opposite purpose, and that's pretty transparent, pretty obvious. But if you're wearing clothing for the reason they were created, for the reason God gave that to us, then that is the reason you're wearing it for, to redirect. Well, tzitzis is the ultimate expression of that. By wearing the tzitzis on our clothes, and again, I'm going to take it a, a step deeper in a second. Okay. But by wearing tzitzis on our clothes, it reminds us what clothes are meant for. It helps direct our focus when we wear clothes and when we see others wearing clothes to what those boundaries are meant to create. And and there's a mental health around this too that's Mm -hmm. so important because I remember back when I was living up in the suburbs and I belonged to a gym there and the dress code, the unofficial dress code was that clothing serves the purpose of covering up the parts of the body that you don't want to showcase to the world. And, you know, I ended up leaving just because it was impossible to guard my eyes there. But even the, the men were doing it, too, where it was just like their, their shirts would cut back more so they could show their delts and their belly button. It was it's pretty, you know, I don't need to see that. But I remember thinking to myself how sad that is for them that they are focusing their identity and how they want other people to identify them with a body that is in a constant state of accelerated depreciation. Exactly. So it, there's no longevity to the happiness because they're basing on something that's just time and gravity will take over as something. In fact, point. that's something that the Ramchal talks about in the way of, way of God, Darach Hashem. talks about the experience one faces when they pass away and what the soul feels like as it's being pulled away from the body. When people dress that way, when they're trying to emphasize that aspect about themselves, forget how we respond to that. Of course, we're going to respond by objectifying them. That is part of our nature, and that's why we wear tzitzis. This is all post-sin. This is post the original sin. So, of course, we're going to experience this as well. And that's why we have to work on ourselves. We have to prepare our surroundings or guide ourselves in a way that will, or let's say condition ourselves in a way that's going to make it easier, make this task easier for ourselves. But, of course, that's the way we're going to respond. And, and, of course, that's the way they're also going to want. That's their nature. Their nature and our nature as well is to find a way to objectify both ourselves and them. And that's really the last point I wanted to bring up with tzitzis. Tzitzis isn't merely about covering up the other person's body. When Adam and Eve looked at each other, but also looked and saw themselves, not just each other, but they saw themselves, they were ashamed. Meaning the source of shame or the source of arousal doesn't just come from the other person. It comes from yourself. It comes from seeing yourself. Who wears the tzitzis after all? Is it the other person? It's you who wears the tzitzis. Right. You are trying to protect yourself from objectifying not only that other person, but yourself as well. We have to look at people as more than just objects and as more than, as, and, and more than just as means to exploit of exploitation for our own personal gratitude. And that not only includes other people, but ourselves as well. We have to find ways of not exploiting ourselves for our own personal gratitude. And that is what the tzitzis do. Not only for objectifying the prostitute in that story, but also for objectifying himself. And he wasn't prepared to do that because of the, the sensitivity that the tzitzis built up in him all those times that he put it on. Okay, great. That is the idea. And in fact, if you look at the verses, 
So just, just before we get into the verse itself, that will take a second, but just the word itself, tzitzis, means to look. It's not telling you not to look. It's telling you, look, look at this. Don't look at the body. Look at the strings. When you see somebody else, when you see yourself, whether it's in a mirror or whether it's in your mind or whether it's as you put on clothes or take your clothes off, look at the tzitzis. Direct your attention there. Build up your sensitivities in the tzitzis. Not just clothes in general, because clothes can be perverted. Use the tzitzis. Look at them. The word tzitz means to look. Also, the verses themselves, it says you should see them, or isamoso. You should see, well, really, you should see it. And then, and, you, and then it says you should remember the commandments of Hashem, and you should fulfill them. And then it says, do not, um, do not stray after your hearts, do not stray after your heart and eyes. Your hearts and eyes, yeah. So the verse is telling us what you do, you should look at the tzitzis, and by looking at the tzitzis, you will not stray after your, again, perfectly normal and very basic nature, which is to objectify and exploit others and yourself. That is why we wear, that is one of the reasons why we wear tzitzis. And again, if you wear it every single day, it's going to build up the sensitivity. If you're diligent about it, who knows what this guy was like when he, um, I mean, he's visiting a prostitute. He clearly had sunken a little bit in his life, whether it's about visiting a prostitute or just wherever he found himself. But he was still careful about wearing tzitzis. And that, and that shows that no matter where you are in life, if you're diligent about this, it's going to build up that sensitivity within you. And I think we'd all benefit, whether it be from a mental health perspective or just in general, from building up that sensitivity. And really the same thing about kippah also. Just building up this humility in the face of God. You don't go out there making your own decisions that are going to pervert or diverge from God's commandments. Right. Because we don't have that intellectual capacity. We don't have that wisdom that God has. And that, of course, is also a very healthy approach in life. Just not to think that we're not to overestimate our own capabilities and our own intellectual prowess. Great. You know, one thing that the, the secular world tries to do in the especially in the area of their psychology, is that equate the sexual urge with any other bodily urge. Mm-hmm. One of thing I, I recognized early when I was contemplating this and I was learning about seat seats was that it's entirely not true. Because if you look at what activates like the urge of hunger, it starts internally within the body. There's all types of things that happen before it gets to the mind saying, you're hungry, I want food. Same with sleep. Same with needing to go to the bathroom. It all starts with the body, then goes the brain saying, we lack something. With the sex words, totally flip-flopped. It starts with looking at something, then going to the mind, contemplating it. Then that's what sends the signal to the body. It's a totally flipped 180 degrees on how everything works. Exactly. Meaning you can sort of bypass that or hack that earlier on. It's something you can actually control and something you can actually work on. And I think we'd all benefit from a sensitivity towards objectifying other people. Certainly a sensitivity towards exploit, exploiting those around us and manipulating those around us in our lives. Massive benefit, yeah. Right. But definitely regarding that idea that it's, it starts with the eyes, that's why the verse says, you should see them. Don't, don't stray after your hearts and after your eyes because sometimes it starts from the hearts, it starts in the brain. The hearts there is, um, according to a lot of commentaries, is referring to the brain. It's referring to either philosophical distractions or whatever philosophical conundrums. Or it's referring to 
Well, let's just say now it could be referring to foreign ideals, foreign, foreign philosophies, or it could be referring to obviously things that, be, that start in the mind, ideas and urges that start in the mind. Gotcha. And the eyes, of course, is, is self-explanatory. Right. Sometimes it's what we see that, the, that distracts us. There's a famous story, but I don't remember who was involved exactly, but it was a rabbi and his student. And the rabbi and the student were walking down the street one day, and there was a woman walking by who was improperly dressed, and the student looked, turned his eyes, his eyes away. And he thought he had done the right thing. Okay, pretty obvious. The rabbi turned to the student and said, that's very good. You know, you turned your eyes away. That's very good. You should want to get to the point where you won't need to turn your eyes away. And I think that perfectly exemplifies this idea. That it's better to be able to look at somebody and relate to them as a human being, no matter how they're dressed, no matter how they're undressed. Right. And understand the humanity in that person. Understand the personality and the spiritual side of that person without being completely distracted by how we can exploit them. Right. I think the part of the answer is when you were saying that the word tzitzitz means look. Yeah. Because it's psych, from a psychology standpoint, which the Torah is all about the human psychology, God mm-hmm. did create us, yeah. is that if you tell someone, don't think about a pink elephant, naturally yeah. all you're going to think about is a pink elephant. Yeah. If you say, don't look there, then you're just going to oh, have this desire to look there. So it's saying, look at, this, look, the seats, yeah. look at the seat seats. And the same thing when you're speaking to someone of the opposite sex, that you're looking, instead of saying, don't look there, if the cleavage is exposed, instead of look at their, you know, their, their face and the demeanor, what expresses their soul. Right. It's more of a what to do, not what to avoid. Right, exactly. Because you can't really do away with the sexual urge. It's essential. It's an essential component of existence, of procreation. It needs to exist. But to the point where it becomes a cause of exploiting others, that's where you can curb it. That's where you can master it and control it. So yes, we, should, we all need our sexual urges, of course. But we don't need to be governed and controlled and dictated by them. And that's like you're saying. We're not, we're not completely ignoring it. We're not trying to not think about it. We're trying to think about it in the appropriate way. And this person realized when he was going up to the top bed, he realized that he was not about to engage with this woman in an appropriate way or in a way that would have been productive. He was about to engage in a destructive and callous and completely, and through completely objectifying her. So okay. that sits us. Last component of this discussion is tefillin. Also, I want to use Rabari Kaplan on this. He's amazing on, on some of these concepts. He really, he really explores them very well. And he, and he presents them to somebody in a, in a very introductory way. In an introductory level, he'll present them. But they're as comprehensive as an introduction can get. So he talks about tefillin as well. And for tefillin, I want to make it very basic and very simple. There is a Gemara, a Talmud, in Brachos, which I'll read very quickly, that discusses the fact that God also wears tefillin, phylacteries. The Gemara cites another Agadic statement. Rabbi Avin Bar Rav Ada said, the Rabbi Yitzchak said, from where is it derived that the Holy One, blessed be he, wears phylacteries, wears tefillin? As it is stated, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Since it is customary to swear upon holy objects, this is the commentary here, it is understood that his right hand and the arm of his strength are the holy objects upon which God swore. Specifically, the right hand, or his right hand, refers to the Torah, as it is stated in describing the giving of the Torah, from his right hand, the fiery law for his people. So that's referring to the Torah, that's his right hand that God's swearing with. The arm of his strength is his left hand, which refers to the tefillin. As it is stated, the Lord gave strength to his nation. And this is understood to be referring to the tefillin. 
That's a verse from Psalms. So then they go into a discussion about that the tefillin are related to the idea of giving strength to the Jewish people. I want to focus on this next part. Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak said to Rav Chia bar Oven, What is written in the, in the phylacteries and the tefillin of the master of the world? Rav Chia bar Oven replied, It is written, Who is like your people Israel, one nation in the land? God's tefillin serve to connect him, in a sense, to the world, the essence of which is the Jewish people. So, before we break that down, yeah. let's discuss what's actually in our own tefillin. Our tefillin contain, as well as other passages, but the passage that everybody knows from the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, Hashem is your God, Hashem is one. So, the tefillin themselves are a very fundamental and basic statement. God is one. And, I, and as the verses go on, uh, they continue in that, in that section, I am fully committed to this God. I'm com- fully committed to Hashem and His commandments. As the passages continue and talk about the commandments that God gave us and what happens if we follow the commandments and what happens if we stray from the commandments, all this is contained within the Shema that we recite twice daily. And in fact, the Gemara, the Talmud, relates the two. It says you should say the Shema, the morning Shema, while you're wearing tefillin. It's an important component of wearing tefillin. Okay, so the tefillin are a declaration of our commitment to God. Our commitment and our acknowledgement of God's, our commitment to God and our acknowledgement of His oneness, of His uniqueness, of how special He is. There is a, before we get to God's, oh, let's talk about God's actually. God's, on the other hand, is a commitment and an acknowledgement of the Jewish people. It's a commitment to the Jewish people, for he declares, and if God's declaring something, it's permanent and eternal. It's God's word. We're talking about the almighty, omnipotent, infinite God. There's nothing bigger than him. Whatever he says, it's the truth. And he says, who is like you, the nation of Israel? His tefillin are an acknowledgement of the greatness of the Jewish people, but the uniqueness of the Jewish people. You right. who are like you, nation of Israel, one nation in all the land. Okay. There's a lot here because, obviously... These are anthropomorphisms. Yeah, so for discussion on anthropomorph, uh, however you say it, Yes. Um, look in Rabari Kaplan's discussion on film. He okay. has a small book, a small sort of a pamphlet on to film that's well-published, right. uh, very but, widely but, published. But, these, but the idea here is that we put it on the, our, you know, our head, an area of our intellect, mm-hmm. and in showing our commitment to God. Exactly. And what, it's this, the same idea that part, what what he willed into existence was his commitment to the Jewish people. Exactly. So we're going to get to an even deeper point of this connection. Okay. But yes, essentially that is what it is. Well, wow. God's commitment to the Jewish people, his acknowledgement of how special the Jewish people are, and our commitment to God and our acknowledgement of how special he is. This is already sounding a little bit like a love affair. And in truth, it really is. There are three passages that we recite when we wind the last part of the film, the last part of the straps around our middle finger three times. Right. And each one of those passages begin, Ve'erastichli. And I'll be wedded to you. Or I will wed you to me, literally. Right. So we are essentially stating or declaring, as we put on our tefillin, as we finally wrap the last bit of strap around our middle finger, that we are now wedded to God. And we do this in the beginning of every single day, with the exception of Shabbat and holidays, for a very different reason. Because those days also are a days of extremely close and intimate connection to God that don't require a second demonstration of that those days are inherently demonstrations of that so side thing yes. but for the tefillin themselves these are a declaration that we are wedded to god we are having a love affair with god 
you know, that's I, the way to put it. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. That that line, when you're putting the tefillin around your finger and saying, I will betroth you to me, and you realize it's written from the perspective of God saying, say this, but this is what I'm saying to you. Mm-hmm. That's like, I always read that in English. It'll probably be the, until my Hebrew, until you have my Hebrew at such a massive level that I have total comprehension, mm-hmm. I will never give that up because I, I love hearing that in the morning. Yeah. You have to you have to fully internalize that. Yeah, whatever language you speak, that is the way you want to speak it because you want to internalize this message. Yeah, it's powerful. God is married to you. He will never give you up, just as you will never give God up. And he is a, he's even more committed to you than you are, because we're talking about God here. And if He declares something, we know it's truth. Even if for us it only consists of putting on our tefillin every day, or making the simple declaration in the morning, or even reading one passage in the Torah or one prayer. For God, that commitment is as universal and as massive and as complete as it can get because we are talking about the infinite God. So his commitment to us is unbreakable, or shall we say unconditional. Right. Our job is to make our commitment to God as unconditional as we can make it. We spoke about this before with the meeting at Mount Sinai. The Jewish people, they demonstrated their unconditional commitment to God before they even knew what he wanted from them. That is essentially what marriage is. When you go into marriage, you have no idea what's going to come next. You don't know what living with this person for the rest of your life is going to look like. And you're ready to make a commitment to this person without having full, a full understanding of who this person is. Without having the same, the same appreciation and, and understanding of this person you will have at the end of your life together. That's, if that's the commitment you're making, that's what we're talking about here. That's the commitment we're making to God because we don't know the end. We haven't seen the end. We don't know what this relationship is going to look like. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be ups and downs. Right. And we're wedded to God. That means for the best of moments and the worst of moments. But we know that his commitment to us, even in the worst of moments, is just as strong as his commitment in the best of moments. And that's what putting on the tefillin every single day is. And you will feel that. If you keep putting it on, even if you do it once, you already feel it. You keep putting it on every single day. You begin your day like this. No matter what your previous day looked like, you are renewing your wedding. You're renewing your vows to God. And you know that he's renewing your commitment to you in the same way. He puts on the film that say, who is like the nation of Israel, one nation in all the land. Then you will feel this intimate connection that no other element of Judaism can really replicate, can truly replicate the same way. And that's essentially what putting tefillin is like. Great. What I wouldn't focus on is that wedding aspect, the unconditional love that you share with God, internalizing that. Whether you're thinking about it or not, it's just going to be internalized because you are putting those words, you're strapping those words, you're strapping the words of commitment and unconditional love to God and acknowledgement of who he is. You're putting that on your body, you're strapping it, you're binding it tight to your body every single day. It's impossible not to be affected by that. I'm trying to think what the analogy would be in a relationship to where, you know, you put on to fill in, maybe you're distracted, you're not focused on the prayers, but you're you stopped what you were doing. Exactly. Just, you know, dealing with the material world work and you put on these boxes on your head. And there's only one reason why you stopped to do that. Exactly. Because you did it for God. That, that's putting it perfectly. Um, you don't need to give an analogy in, in, in married life because it happens all the time. It happens throughout our lives. Um, well, well, throughout our lives with, in relationships where without even thinking about it, we're strengthening our commitment. We're strengthening, we're strengthening our connection just by doing something. Just by doing an action. Right. It's one thing to, do, uh, to have lip service, but you're putting the tefillin on. You're actually stri- strapping it to your body only solely because God asked you to. Right. 
There's nothing like it. And the same thing in, same thing in married life. There's nothing like that. You're doing it because that's what, that's what your spouse wants. That's what your spouse needs. That's what your partner wants. That's what your partner needs. You're strengthening that relationship regardless of how you're thinking about it. Yeah, our spouses do not care if we are robotically on autopilot taking out the garbage every day and emptying the dishwasher exactly. because what we initiated that habit out of our exactly. wanting to do when something for them. You put on the film the first time. Exactly. That was a very conscious decision. Right. Exactly. And they, um, but of course, yeah. if you do it consciously every time, it only strengthens it more. If you wear it sits and you actually look at it as much as you can, well, I'm going to say you should stare at it all the time, but when you look at it and you internalize it as much as you can, you only strengthen that. Same thing with wearing a kippah every single day. Anything else you want to add on this subject? Only that if you keep doing it, it's impossible not to internalize it. You're going to feel different. This will help you treat other human beings better, whether it be the people who are closest to you or even people who you only meet random encounters. This will improve, These three things can improve your life greatly, and it will at least improve it a little bit. So it's, I think, a huge investment, very worthwhile investment to make. It doesn't ask for a lot. Rabbi, I appreciate you coming on. I did want to let the audience know that if you are a man and you do not have tefillin and you want to begin fulfilling the mitzvah of tefillin, to please reach out to me at president at torchweb.org. I'll be happy to work with the rabbis here to facilitate getting you some tefillin. And Rabbi Abrams, if anyone is interested in one-on-one study to learn more of these subjects or Parsha or whatever you're interested in learning more of, how would they get in contact with you? Yeah, anybody who has some sort of inquisitiveness in Judaism, I would love to meet you. And to get in contact with me, try emailing me at ea at torchweb.org. Excellent. EA at torchweb.org. Thank you, Rabbi Abrams. I appreciate you coming on, and I hope I can have you on again in the future. Of course. I'd be happy to. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.